Chapter Fourteen, Grace, from Declaring Righteous to Becoming Righteous. No word in the Christian religious vocabulary is a source of more contention, misunderstanding, and misdirection than grace. Let us first make sure we understand what grace means to many of our Christian friends, and what it cannot mean if we accept the premises of the Restoration. We saw in Chapter Two that Augustine rewrote Christian theology in accordance with his belief that through faith we are justified. He took justification to mean the declaring of someone to be righteous. God imputes the merits of the crucified and risen Christ through grace to a fallen human being, who remains without inherent merit. This idea of grace as a gift of righteousness that is imputed to us becomes the nucleus of the Reformation spearheaded by Luther. We are saved by faith, meaning. We trust that Christ is perfectly reliable, and since we are judged by His perfect righteousness, standing in place of our own sinfulness, we are held guiltless. With Him standing effectively in our stead at judgment, we are considered righteous. Considered blameless is the key. Protestants believe that Christ does not just suffer in our stead; He is judged in our stead. Hence, one is justified in God's judgment, though one is actually wholly a sinner, in Luther's language. Or, as the Thirty-Nine Articles, the creedal basis of most Protestant denominations, states, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith. Reformation historian Dermot McCulloch elaborates. There was no human merit, not even among the elect. All righteousness in a humanity which was utterly fallen and under destruction was that of Christ Himself, an alien righteousness given to humanity by grace. Human beings could never actually be just or righteous. This teaching sounds very much like Zeezrom's claim, rather harshly condemned in the Book of Mormon. That God will save His people in their sins. It is hard to imagine what such a conception would even mean for God's nature or purposes, or for such a stunted human potential. As Latter-day Saints understand the principle, salvation is the gradual development of each and every being into a just and holy being, as Joseph taught. It is a long process of learning how to participate in the divine nature. As Peter foresaw, it is simply not in God's power to gift us with a holy character, or magically insert us into healthy relationality, as Joseph taught from the lectures on theology, better known as the lectures on faith. Why purify themselves as he is pure? Because if they do not, they cannot be like him. In Augustine's own day. Alarmed Christians saw the dangerous road to which his innovations regarding grace would lead. His teachings threatened to undermine the whole foundation of the Christian life as an active and loving cooperation between God and man. That threat became institutionalized in normative Christianity. Joseph explained why righteousness cannot be imputed, 
by God's grace cannot short-circuit the process of sanctification. Only that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. That which breaketh a law and abideth not by law cannot be sanctified by mercy, that is, by grace. The great mystic Emanuel Swedenborg understood law in the same way. Man is so created that he can be more and more closely united to the Lord. He is so united not by knowledge alone, nor by intelligence alone, nor even by wisdom alone, but by a life in accordance with these. The life in accordance will be a long and gradual process as we acquire and practice greater knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom. This is an empowering definition of law. Those precepts that train us in the nature of happiness and therefore in the nature of godliness. They are the principles by which, in Joseph's language, assisted by the Holy Spirit, we become pure and holy. Law refers to the articulation of certain realities inherent in the texture of the universe, realities that link certain choices to what is sweet and others to what is bitter, some that unify us and some that fracture community. Laws are given to tutor us in holy conduct that becomes holy character. That is why only he who is able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom can abide a celestial glory. Or as Brigham Young put the case, it being the will and design of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost that you should be a saint will not make you one, contrary to your own choice. Seeing law in such a light, we understand why Ezra Taft Benson counseled that when obedience ceases to be an irritant and becomes our quest, in that moment, God will endow us with power. In other words, contra the whole Protestant heritage with its foundation in sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, and the doctrine of imputed righteousness, saints proclaim that with all eternity before them, for the exercise of every power with which the Creator endowed them, spiritual, mental, and physical, they can be perfected by experience and obedience to eternal law and ready to act in harmony with celestial intelligences. In light of Latter-day Saint conceptions of the human spirit as being inherently divine, we are promised full divinity as we practice the essence of that divine principle most beautifully articulated in the three baptismal covenants. Luther's dictum that we are justified by God's judgment, though wholly a sinner, is sadly defeatist and negates the transformative and cooperative power of Christ's atonement, which eventuates in the immortality and eternal life of the human family. And yet, Nephi taught that we are indeed saved by grace after all we can do. As saints, we should have no problem acknowledging the abundant giftedness that everywhere colours the great plan of happiness from beginning to end. First, because Christ's gift precedes rather than follows our need. Creation anticipates our arrival. 
His atonement foresees our sorrows and suffering, and His resurrection inaugurates our own. And second, because Jesus had not finished His work when His body was slain, neither did He finish it after His resurrection from the dead, although He had accomplished the purpose for which He then came to the earth, He had not fulfilled all His work. And when will He? Not until He has redeemed and saved every son and daughter of our father Adam that have been or ever will be born upon this earth to the end of time. Could this be what Christ meant when He said of His travails in Gethsemane, And I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. We trust that as myriad agents here and across the veil strengthen and support and encourage us, so do the tendrils of Christ's love succor and strengthen in myriad ways, tangible though unrecognized. As Brigham Young suggested, when we obtain celestial glory, we shall have to explain that it is through the grace of God after all. Grace describes every aspect of our relationship and interaction with the Healing One, because that relationship is not transactional. His love precedes and transcends any action, merit, or fault of ours. He first loved us. We believe that God's love for us is a love wholly uncontaminated by preconditions or by expectations. It is nowhere more beautifully illustrated than in a dream vision that Truman Madsen described. He wrote, We had just come from a parched visit to Egypt in the Sinai Desert. There even the native Bedouin can survive in the sweltering heat no more than three hours without water. We had reminded our students of one of the few self-regarding cries of the Saviour from the cross, I thirst, to which the response was a sponge of vinegar. That night I had a dream. I was beaten down on my hands and knees and was conscious of a burning thirst. As I lifted to my lips a small cup of liquid, an unearthly liquid, cool, radiant, delicious, I felt a pair of compassionate hands behind me, but not touching. Their very presence near my head and neck created a comfortable, blessed feeling. And then the miracle. As I drank in exquisite relief, the cup filled continually to the top. The more I sought to quench my whole-souled thirst, the more it filled and flowed. A wave of gratitude to Christ, for in the dream the comforter was Christ, consumed me, and the impulse was to stop drinking and turn around to thank him. But by his subtle power, the sweet assurance came that my drinking was his thanks. It was what he most wanted. It was his reward, even his glory. It was like the gracious hostess who takes delight in seeing her family and guests eat heartily. I knew, and I knew he knew. So I drank and drank until I was full. Only then was he gone.